Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm your host for today, Katie Rainey, and I've been your stand-in host for a while, but Brian's back. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi. I'm still your host for today because today's episode has Brian in the hot seat, and I'm going to grill you. Mm-hmm. You ready? I'm, I'm ready to be roasted like it's fucking Comedy Central. I've gotten pretty good at this, I think. Mm. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't think I'm, I've gotten good at it yet, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had to get better at this, I guess. Uh, I, still, last... I still love you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, you are back. Mm-hmm. I'm happy you're back. I'm happy, too. I'm happy that you're happy that I'm back. Yeah, we've missed you. It's like a hall of mirrors. I've missed you. It's a hall of mirrors of happiness <laughs> right here. We've missed you. Rosetta and I did. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot that's been going on. And today we want to, as you're coming back into the podcast and with the launch of fucking Emerald City on Sunday night, mm-hmm. your first novel. How are you feeling about that? Well, it, I actually have to say that because I did a, a reading at Writers and Words last night in Baltimore, mm-hmm. so it's been a whirlwind going there on Monday and then being back here now on, now it's Wednesday. I had to be reminded to tell people what my book was called and who I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not good at the uh, marketing part yet, but okay. I'm, wor- I'm working on it. I'm a, I'm a true artist. You well, know, it's the you know, Wednesday it's before your book launch, so we better get really good at marketing yeah. it. <laughs> That's why I need you. So we're going to release this episode tomorrow. We're real crunching it this week because there's just a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And so with the launch of Emerald City coming out, we thought this would be a really good time to put you in the spotlight and interview you about your book and everything that's been going on. And you have been gone for a little while. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start with that? Sure. Why not? Do you have a question or should I just launch into it? Well, you've been gone and I've just said that you've been away and I don't know if you want to, however you want to launch into it. Well, I think the best way to, to go into it is to thank the people that have gotten me here to this point. Most importantly, Katie and my family and some friends whom I won't name just because I don't know. I don't know who wants to be named on here, but yeah. So I've been struggling with addiction for a long time, my whole life, really. You know, it got to a point where they call it a progressive disease for a reason. And it got to a point where, you know, there was it was unmanageable, as they say. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to somehow come to the conclusion that I wanted help, even though I had to co- overcome some serious obstacles mm-hmm. to get there. And I had help that other people aren't as privileged to have. So basically I went I went into a rehab program and I planned to stay there for a detox. But when you're dope sick, it lasts a long time, especially when you're using a lot of other stuff. So I made the very, very wise decision on my second or third day there with the help of the amazing staff there that I basically had to give up my first book tour in North Carolina, which mm-hmm. Katie went in and under extreme duress <laughs> Which I cannot overstate and like, you know, I'll forever be indebted for. And now people can go back and listen to the episodes that I hosted. <laughs> yeah. And, and and know exactly what you were uh, undergoing. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to cry right now. I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of people who are. I think that's okay. There are a lot of people who are more kind to me than I might have deserved, but. 
definitely more kind to you than you are to yourself. Well, I'm starting to I'm starting to work on that yeah. feeling. Um, but this it you know this whole process has taught me to be proud of myself. This is the first time I've ever been proud of myself, and like retroactively or anachronistically, however you want to put it, like I actually feel proud of having written something. Mm-hmm. I you know by the end, like I mean really like addiction is not. It's a spiritual death. And obviously there were a lot of larger health risks, but that's the main of it. It's like, you know, it kind of puts in perspective, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Even with this amount of time that I have under my belt now, it's pretty apparent to me that no spiritual death is worth trying to cover up feelings, which is the reason that we do what we do. That, that's it. We don't want to deal with our feelings. We don't want to deal with what's going on in our head. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I, I was willing to talk about this right now, I, I, I first spoke with my parents because I wanted to make sure that they were comfortable with it, is because to me, this is not, and even while I was using, I knew this, this is not a moral issue. It's a health issue. It's a mental health and physical health issue. It's to be ashamed of it is to perpetuate it. We all know what's going on in this country right now, and I'm not just like another number. I'm not another statistic and neither is the person that's living on the street. So, you know, it's, it's important to me. So I decided to talk about it. We did go back and forth before this podcast debating whether or not we were going to share this because it's a lot. And especially right before your book coming out. I mean, that's kind of a big bomb to drop and a lot of truth that you're sharing right now with some folks that we don't even know, you know? So that's a hard thing to do. But I think the thing that's really important for us is that living your truth is really fucking hard and important. And so I think that's part of this is trying to be bare and try to be vulnerable. And mm-hmm. I think also like one thing that we've really learned together is Tracy and a friend. Oh, <laughs> just got a call from a fellow recovering addict. <laughs> that's how it works. People. <laughs> I think that one thing that we're really learning is how to be vulnerable with each other in ways that like I don't think that we've ever really explored and what you're going through has opened us up in ways that we've had to and wanted to and didn't even know we wanted to and I don't know I think this is part of it is that vulnerability and I'm sure there will be people who judge us for this but fuck them (laughs) (laughs) well you know what not fuck them because bless their hearts no, I mean, you know, I judge people every day. We all do, you know, and I, I judge people. And really, when it comes down to it, in my deepest heart of hearts, I don't believe that judgment ever works, ever. So, like, all I can do is, you know, I have to just take care of myself. And, you know, I, I understand. I mean, especially when you hurt people, like, they're going to judge you or even people that I haven't hurt, you know, it is what it is. I was lucky enough not to really hurt too many people, but I especially hurt the people that were closest to me, which really sucks, you know. Well, we've definitely been through a lot in the last few months. And I think just on that theme of being vulnerable, there's one moment that just came to mind. You said it was a, a turning point for you, too, in recovery. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. I'm writing about it. So yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, I think that that's important to talk about because I'm, you know, I'm sure there's people listening who are suffering from the same illness or going through similar things or have a loved one that's going through. I mean, it is widespread and vast. and And most people that are suffering from it 
don't know or deny that they are. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we do, you know. I mean, you know, you, you think you need it to survive. Mm-hmm. And in a f- I'm not talking about a physical way, like, oh, I'm going to start going through withdrawal or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I literally didn't think I could be happy until I got outside of it, you know. Well, there was something that really changed for you just in recovery that changed your trajectory. And I don't know if you want to talk about that moment. And- yeah, no, I would love to. And I definitely want to write something about this. I've been working on it, but I it's really early days and I'm trying to focus on myself more. But mm-hmm. basically, I, when I was in rehab, I was, it was so, it was pretty bad for me. It was bad to the point that when my parents came to visit one of the administrators who did the orientation singled me out in front of all of the people, the parents and the loved ones and everyone and said like their child is going through like absolute hell. Like I know what he's going through. I've been through that. Like, you know, and I like kind of broke the record for like the amount of days I was in detox at mm-hmm. that facility. And what it made me do is act in unfortunate ways. And which is, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, the other, it's like the other side of the coin to active addiction when you're, you're behaving in ways that are not yourself. When you're withdrawing, you're going to behave in ways that are not yourself. Mm-hmm. You're in, in just an insurmountable amount of pain, you know? And I was, you know, I was doing the standard rehab thing where I was calling people and yelling at them and telling me to get get out of there because mm-hmm. I was it, I mean it's it's just like really it's ineffable and one of the conversations I had with Katie really triggered her based on her own past experience and the way she's been treated in the past you know afterwards I was angry because I was like okay you don't know what I'm going through right now right like I want to get out of here because I would do anything to stop like what this pain is like you know and then I went to one of the groups. I couldn't pay attention, obviously, and which is saying something because Mr. E, he's one of my favorite group leaders there. But afterwards, we were talking outside with like you know the rest of the patients and stuff, and like I, you know, I made a lot of really good friends there. And two of them gave me were trying to give me advice, and one of them said, when he needs to talk to his wife, it needs to be in a controlled environment. And what he was saying was very practical. It was, I. There is too much anger in this relationship, blah, 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 where I, in order for us to hash this out in a <laughs> uncontrolled setting, I, mm-hmm. a.k.a. i.e. not not in th- a therapeutic setting, you know, with a counselor or someone supervising. But, you know, you know, you learn to pick up signs when you become more of like a spiritual person, which isn't to say some religious person. It's a very different thing. But you learn to pick up things. And I had already made the decision that, like, my life was out of control. I knew I wanted to be sober. But at that point, I also, all I heard was the word controlled environment. And all I remembered was thinking I am completely out of control. And so I went right back to the phone and I called Katie. And I'll, I, you know, despite whatever, whatever justification or rationale that I had for my own reasons for being upset, it just didn't matter anymore. It was like... It was like a clicking point where it was like, I need to take responsibility for what I've done to myself, you know, regardless of whatever trauma or depression or anxiety and all what that subsumes, you know, there are reasons that I got to the place I was at, but those reasons don't matter anymore unless you don't want to get better. That's it. That's, that's the decision. Like, that's what like the 12 step pro- program is all about. That's what I like so much about it is like, no matter how much therapy I went to, no ma- like I went to psychoanalysis for three years and it gave me some tools, but 
no matter what, if I didn't apply the idea that I need, I needed to take responsibility for changing my own actions, starting with putting down drugs and alcohol, Mm -hmm. then I was never going, I was never going to change. I was just going to be a self-pitying, self-centered, you know, individual that I still am to this day and I will be, but I have to constantly be vigilant of it you know Mm -hmm. that's it and so yeah that moment was pretty uh profound for me it was profound in a way that was strange because you know at by that point like 15 or 16 days in they were calling me sweaty jesus (laughs) 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 because i was such (laughs) i had my hair down and i was like sepulchrally like uh, just pallid and like <laughs> yeah there were people some they, they were pretty concerned about me but but honestly that uh, I, I will speak to that I'm very glad that that happened because I will never forget that and I never want to go through that again so I think like just to add on to that like that doesn't change everything right like there are still we've still had moments of struggle since then and you know you learning to live with your anxiety and just your depression. Although I don't know if you would actually use that word for you. I think I'm the one that struggles probably more with the clinical word depression, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I think it's given you the tools to sort of navigate in a new way. Those moments of anxiety that you fall into, which we've seen happen in the last few weeks. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, you've had moments, but then I don't know. I don't know what I want to say about that, but I just I think like I think it's important to acknowledge that like it it doesn't just disappear. No. You know, with a moment of profundity, and I think that you and I are both skeptical of moments of profundity at oh, times yeah. in our I mean, lives. They're they're only checkpoints and like yeah. the uh the idea that you think it's going to disappear is the idea that will lead you back to using again. Mm-hmm. Like if you're an, whether you're an addict or it'll lead you back to your depression again or something mm-hmm. like that. Like if you're not, I don't know. It's like, I think the American health system has made a lot of inv- advancements and that mental health has become a big issue, which is great. But I do think there's still an idea that there's a panacea out there. Mm-hmm. You go to a therapist, you vomit up all your feelings yeah. And yeah, you'll vent, you'll feel better for a little bit, but it does, it does take work and that's it. And I've only like really just begun. Like I, I have a very long way to go. All I've done is begin to str- scrape the surface that if I listen to certain thoughts in my head that I know are bad for me, or if I know, if I don't recognize certain patterns, like that, that's just the beginning. Like, you know, it's like really like now it's, you know, at, at some point it's going to be a, about me figuring out exactly where in my life I am so angry or so anxious, you mm-hmm. know, or so afraid and so greedy or, you know, whatever it is, you know. But the good news is meetings really help. And I, uh, the moments that I've had like that, I have done that and felt very, a lot better, you know, yeah. because they are just like, they are a version of society that would function a lot in a in a lot more healthy way. Even though people people kind of view it like a cult, and it's anything but. They're all suggestions, mm-hmm. you know. That's it. No one's no one's forcing you to be there. Well, I think that this is incredibly brave of you to share on our podcast, and I do want to acknowledge that because I know how hard this is, and also with your book coming out, like that's a scary thing to do, and I think you're doing a really brave thing, and. I think that, you know, it's really admirable for somebody who might be listening who might need that help as well. And to also know that they can reach out to us that mm-hmm. like, you know, if no one else is listening or if you feel like you can't like 
we're two people who have definitely been through the trenches. Yep. I've already, even before I got clean um, and up till now, I've already like corresponded with some people, mm. you know, who have gone through experiences or are still in it or whatever, what, 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 There's... whatever stage you're at, that's nothing to be ashamed of, I think <laughs> is the important thing. It, it, it feels like it. Yeah. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like when you're putting people through hell. But you're not putting anyone through hell more than yourself. I also know that now. Mm-hmm. So I'll say for my part, too, like, I think it's important for families of loved ones, you know, who are going through addiction or in recovery or whatever to talk about what they're also doing. Like, I'm also in Narnon and going to meetings and therapy myself because, you know, I definitely was in, like, when it was at the height of everything that we were going through, I was definitely in like that. Okay. Katie's most intense multitasking. Mm -hmm. Like how do I take care of everything right now? And which is exactly what you need to learn not to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, that, that also happened like while you were in rehab, Mm -hmm. I, and in recovery, I also had a moment of collapse. Like Mm -hmm. after the book tour, after like, doing everything I just I I I fell apart for a good two weeks there and I I was a bit reclusive and and couldn't see anybody and I had to just like I mentally was spent and really had to dig deep and feel a lot of things and work through a lot of things and go to meetings and talk to people and my I mean it's it's recovery myself you know in in Narnon we say you know we're addicts as well. We're addicted to addicts, right? <laughs> and especially like wanting to help them and do everything for them and love them and make them not feel what like you were feeling. And that's a really hard thing to say, like I'm powerless over their addiction and mm-hmm. like what they're going through. And like, I can't, I can't change that. So what are the things that I can change? And like, what are the things that are okay for me to detach with love as we say and so that's been a huge journey for me as well it's just like learning that and it's still really hard daily I don't know we we both got all the books we got all the (laughs) the literature around us because that's what we do we Mm -hmm. read and write through our things you wrote a ton I did in rehab yeah I uh after about two weeks I remember on like the 10th day I I wrote for like three hours all these memories of like all these shitty things that I'd done like it was it was like almost like skipping to the fourth step but like not really you know mm-hmm. cuz like i'm not i'm not acting like i actually did that like thoroughly yet you know mm-hmm. it started with that and then as i started to get a little better i had a really good friend of mine come down and um get them to put me back on the right meds because it was not tenable mm-hmm. what I, what was happening i was just I was coming off of too much stuff, basically. And then I started I started writing. And I mean, like, the, the turnaround was, like, incredible. I mean, I wrote, like, 60 pages in, over those two weeks and, like, mm-hmm. had all these ideas. And I put on, like, almost 20 pounds. Like, it was crazy. I mean, like, you really start to see exactly what you did to yourself. And the idea that I couldn't write without using. I was going to say that. That's the biggest thing. And I think a lot of people, it's good for writers to hear. And I know Stephen King has talked about this. That was his biggest fear when he got sober. Yeah, in on writing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remembered that. I kept that in mind while I was like detoxing. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like he says it's better. I'm going to trust him. And it, it is. It's like 
you're you're just not as confident. That's the only difference. Yeah. And and even by the end, like you're not confident anymore. It doesn't do anything. Like by the end of your use, the reason you give up is because it's not doing anything for you yeah. anymore. You're doing it because you literally don't know another way to live. And what I was gonna come back to is what was especially difficult for you and like, you know, not to like put words in your mouth or anything, but like I, I, I think this is true, is that during that period of collapse, you were in a state of limbo because you can get clean, but not change, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like that moment of profundity wasn't some like snap correction, like chiropractor bullshit, like, mm-hmm. you know, but like at the same time, it's like, I do know when I'm acting out now. Like yeah. I know that I like I know when I'm in my head and just telling myself I'm a piece of shit, you know? It might last a day. <laughs> We've seen that happen. <laughs> but like, like I go to a meeting and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm fucked up. The problem yeah. isn't drugs. It's me. Like I, I, I am the problem, you know? Like I tell myself I'm terrible. I, you know, all that stuff. And you can give me evidence to the contrary. You can show me everything I accomplished as a kid, mm-hmm. all the stats, and it doesn't matter. It's not going to change the brain waves, you know? The only thing I can do about that is doing the work myself. But yeah, anyway, so yeah, I know that that period of collapse, I think, had a lot to do with not knowing whether I was actually going to c- commit to not just sobriety, but like, you know? Yeah. Am I going to be in some state of ambivalence about like whether my life is worth living or like this and that and like all that stuff, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's really hard getting sober is, I don't think watch, 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 uh, watch American relapse and you can see how hard it is. Like, Yeah. We got really addicted <laughs> to that show. Dope sick nation. Yeah. Do- yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that was definitely a hard thing for me to parse through. The word trigger is an interesting word Mm -hmm. because I think there are people who abuse and misuse language, as we know. Sure. And I think the word gets a really bad rap for a lot of reasons. And I think people don't pay attention to actually like what an actual trigger looks like Mm -hmm. and feels like and really how it like there are people out there who like, I mean, there were. I mean, to be to be really perfectly honest, there were moments in that collapse where I was not myself at nearly 33 years old anymore. I was mm-hmm. myself at 13 years old and 16 years old, and you were not you. And I relived some things that were just like, I, like it was really painful, and I like had a hard time separating you from those other feelings, which I'm still working on. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's a long and hard process, but I think that was part of it where I was just like so spent physically that and mentally that it just like, I like all the walls that we like to talk about that I put up, which I do. And that's part of my problem too. Just kind of couldn't hold back these like irrational things I was thinking. And so I don't know, I don't want to turn this around back to me. This is an episode about you, but. I think it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> From an objective standpoint. <laughs> we're really diving into this. Uh, yeah. And and also, yeah, we're not we're not gonna be this fucking serious all the time now. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Just because I'm not banging back George Pores anymore doesn't mean I'm some like Oh, just like goodness. somber ass like <laughs> zombie. <laughs> no, certainly not. We we are two people that enjoy 
laughter and I don't know how many dark jokes we've made over the last two yeah. months. Most people would probably oh, yeah. think that we're pretty irreverent for that. But. On my on my group thread with my friends, I said if uh, Rafael Nadal didn't lost the the U.S. Open, I was going to relapse. They thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep that one to ourselves. They, they knew I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think this is a really important conversation that will that will come up more and more and we have guests that we've already planned to have come on who are incredible like more knowledgeable than either of us and can speak at some point in the future they'll be coming on mm-hmm. and talk about their experiences and we'll talk I'm sure more and more about this but I think it was important for us to both say like what's been going on and mm-hmm. and, and also more than anything to just again not make this an issue that people hide in the dark because yeah. that's what perpetuates this yeah. problem I mean, we have a serious, we have a problem in this country that's far surpassed the HIV epidemic and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. And we're in an opium war with China basically at this point where they're just importing fentanyl into our country. I know. Yeah. And I could have been one of those people, you know, just Mm -hmm. as easily. And it's just, it's serious. Like people don't want to talk about things. People didn't want to talk about cancer at some point. It's crazy. Like, you know, it's just crazy what we do. It doesn't make any sense, but... In the moment, it does, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so none of this is to uh, make excuses, but uh, you know, this is bigger than myself, a lot bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And when you really dig into it and see what people have gone through, when you like, you know, it's it's tough, it's tough. But yeah, I also wrote a book. <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> and there's a book coming out, yeah. and there's a lot of stuff about addiction in there. So subconsciously, I was channeling some stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was actually gonna be like my. I was gonna turn into the book with I know. that. Sober, I have um, psionic powers now. So <laughs> great. <laughs> well, I do want to turn to Emerald City now, and I'm sure we'll return to this and talk more about it. But I do want to mm-hmm. say thank you for sharing that because I know how hard this is and. I mean, to share this on our platform for anyone to listen is mm-hmm. a lot. I won't deflect it like I usually do. It is hard. My stomach is sweating. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of things I've done that have been very hard, but talking about it is very hard. Oh, I'm proud of you. Yeah. Thank you. So tell me about this book. Well, tell uh, me the story of this book, because oh, I don't man. know if you've actually fully said it on this podcast. Yeah. And, and we're not going to read it off the back, are we? No. No. Let's, let's do a, a no, an organic, the, like, Brian tells someone on the street thing. Tell us what the book's about, but then tell us the history of this book coming to fruition is okay, what I cool. want to know, because it's a very interesting story. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. So I'll start with Benison. It, like, even though there's three main characters, and to me... How about you start with the title of the book? Well, yeah, Emerald City. See, I'm still working on it. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yep. My name's Brian Birnbaum, by the way. <laughs> So yeah, so there's three main characters and none of them are above the other in terms of importance. They're all equally important to me. But I'll start with Benison because like it kind of like it's easier to kind of move outward like and you know in a multivalent sense. But so basically he's a college basketball player and he's struggling like big time because um he basically is like double thinking himself while he's on the court and that comes from my personal experience. I'll talk about that in a bit. He also has deaf parents like I do. And his dad also owns a sign language interpreting company, like my dad does. However, so unlike my dad, his dad is running video relay service minutes, which basically means video relay service, or VRS as they call it, you know, in in the industry, is basically an interpreting, a phone, a telephonic interpreting, a video conferencing 
interpreting service for the deaf. Mm -hmm. So basically a deaf individual wants to call, let's say, their doctor. They, using a monitor, whether on their computer, their iPad, whatever, um, call a relay service, and they see the interpreter who's got a headset who then calls the number that they're trying to call. And so it's interpreted, you know. But what they're doing are running, they're running phony calls. They're hiring deaf people on one side of the room to call interpreters on the other side and just sit there and do, you know, maybe talk or idle or like, you know, do whatever, mm-hmm. eat snacks, bullshit. And so they're making millions and it's tied up into organized crime. And that's where uh, Julia and Peter come in because Julia's family is um, somewhat loosely connected to this to this deal. Her granddad like basically approached Benison's dad for it. And meanwhile, Julia's granddad works for a like this really nebulous like like CIA involved kingpin mm-hmm. who basically is like obsessed with this ritualistic herb from an ancient tribe, like a equatorial sort of like a- ancient tribe that Julia's granddad contracts Peter to run this across the Canadian border for him after he picks it up from this barge like over like across like opposite the Maritimes. So basically that's the gist of the story. Now, each character has like a piece of me, I would say. Benison's sports anxiety is something that I experienced in my life. Like basically I was a big time athlete, you know, basketball, baseball, and I basically completely lost my ability to perform. Like it was basically performance anxiety. And it, whether it was a natural... What do they call that? Yips? Yeah, I don't know. Isn't that what they call it? Yeah, yips? they call it yips. Look at sure. me, you know, in sports terms. Yeah, yips. That's... Sports. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yips. That's a, of an extreme extreme variety, you know. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. there are times where it was like throwing up in trash cans and shit and having panic attacks. But, <laughs> but basically, it was just devastating because I couldn't do the thing that I loved the most, and like I couldn't do it anymore. And I, that's like, that's like where I really first started to feel terrible about myself, you know. But that was kind of just like the beginning. So that's where I kind of got the idea for Benison's character. And uh, and then obviously having deaf parents um, and an interpreting company, all that stuff, like that's where that came into play. Even though, you know, obviously my dad has never done, has never engaged in that sort of illegal activity before. There, That stuff has happened in the VRS world. Mm-hmm. Like it was rampant at one point. And so like, you know, I, I did interview my dad about people that he knew in the industry, you know, people that he's known that have gone to prison, mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know. And it's a really interesting story. So I started from there. Um, Julia's character came about because honestly, I was very interested in a, I was interested in an Italian family that was like getting out and sort of like becoming legit and not not, like turning their money into something legit, but like getting out from the family, like getting out of the family and which they did. And her father's an addict and he had like 20 years clean. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the book, he relapses. And so like I... That's probably one of the most heartbreaking parts of the book for me is the day that Julia, which she's like 12 at the time and discovers that her father is an addict for Mm -hmm. the first time or in recovery. Like she follows him to a meeting and hears him talking about it. Yeah. And, uh, And, uh, I mean, basically, you know, I won't, I won't say why she follows him, you know, I don't want to give that away, but yeah, she basically follows him and finds it out. And so I wanted to write about all of that and that's where her character came from. And then it, it kind of her meeting Peter 
like that's where I kind of got the idea to kind of like blend those worlds and like you know there's a lot mm. of serendipity in novels you know like a little bit more than maybe sure. in real life but honestly not really like in in real life that's that's where you hear these crazy fucking documentaries and shit you know yeah like crazy serendipity and so she basically is tasked to find Peter for her granddad but they kind of like spark a romantic relationship and Peter's like a raging alcoholic cokehead who has a very tormented past. Mm-hmm. And Peter comes from that part of me that's just like in, entirely like that part that just wants to be morbid and dark and like feels like, you know, sometimes I'll sit there and say, am I a, am I a psychopath? Like, you know, even though what they say, if you ask yourself if you're a psychopath, you're probably not a psychopath. <laughs> but like that's like that's where it comes. And Peter's not a psychopath, but like. I think any writer who writes like something that's not, you know, romance novels, who <laughs> writes anything dark in their book at some point has asked themselves like, are they so yeah, right. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where he, that's where his character came from. I mean, like he came from the thoughts I'd have whether it was from a really bad hangover or being strung out or whether it was just from like existential just despair, like, you know. Well, what about so you have been working on this book for 6 years? Yes. Six fucking years. Yeah, because when I started, I, like, couldn't write. <laughs> yeah, I wrote, a, I wrote a whole, like, massive first draft, and I threw the entire thing out. Well, what's incredible to me about you, and, and now it's time for me to sing your praises and to you to sit there uncomfortably while you Great. accept my And my stomach praise. continues to sweat. <laughs> <laughs> is that when I say you've rewritten this novel six times, it is not like oh, you changed a thread in the novel, but overall the structure is the same. Like from the first word to the last, you have rewritten this novel six times. Mm-hmm. There are millions and millions of words that you've thrown out to to get it to this iteration, which is the best iteration. And that's the one that's getting published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I honestly do agree with that. Like it really is the best one, which I'm, I am proud of that. Like whether people like it or not, I hope they do. But like I, I am like, okay, I did my best. You know, I did, I did rewrite it. And I read, times. I read every iteration. And I, I, so I can attest that this is the best iteration. The fourth iteration was my second favorite. Ooh, wow. I almost missed. Yeah. Yeah, you almost missed. Wow. You went back That's, a little with the fifth, wow. but then you, 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 you know, last two minutes of the game. Yeah, classic overthinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so now, so the story of getting this published, though, I mean, we have our own press now, and we're starting with your book because we want to, not only because it's a great book, but because we want to make sure that we're doing this press right and any mistakes we made, which we have made mistakes. Mm-hmm. That we make, you've been kind enough to be the guinea pig on it Mm -hmm. and to let us, you know, trial and error on your novel. But it almost didn't get published with us. It almost got published with, well, you want to tell that story? Well, yeah, it didn't really almost get published as with someone as, as like, as it was on the path. It was like on the path to it. Yeah. And yeah. and, And again, I like, I hope this can be like a message of, 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 of like faith to other writers, even though like I'm the last person to be <laughs> giving this message, like, at least like before in my life, mm-hmm. I would be the last person to give this message because like really you will like, you will get, I've heard from so many writers how close they get mm-hmm. and then it, and it goes, and it's like really hard to deal with. I, I, I actually really repressed it when it happened and it did, it, it was bad. But uh, basically about two years ago, I think maybe three now, actually, 
I got an agent at Writer's House, which is a really big time agency. You know, they they have like with rate, the fourth iteration. Yeah, with the fourth. Yeah, with with Katie's second favorite one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with you know they 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 have Rachel Kushner, Volman, Franzen. Fran, Franzen for you know whether you like him or not. You know, obviously he's huge. Like they have big writers. You know, mm-hmm. and I was like, holy shit! Like this is it! Like I'm like I got this. And then uh, my agent ended up leaving the industry and promising me to pa- pr- promising to pass me along which he didn't he welched on that and it was like it was on Katie's birthday which is 2 days after my birthday and so I didn't tell her cuz I didn't want to ruin her you know, ruin your birthday <laughs> but yeah it it sucked <laughs> it sucked man like cuz I got that email and there was something about the email where I could tell that like I think he's just out like, yeah. I don't think he cares what happens with his clients. And, like, I could just tell, you know, there was something about it. And and even though, like, I'm working on that voice that tells me things that I don't know, like, at the same time, like, you know, I did, I, I had this feeling I could tell, by the mm-hmm. way. Like, there was a terseness to his emails and stuff. And, and that was really hard. But, like, what kind of really buoyed me was our was our reading series, you know, you and, you and Devin's reading series. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kept going and I kept seeing people and, like, kept in contact with people. It's almost like being in fucking recovery in a way. Like, like seriously, <laughs> it was like coming back from just, like literally just being dropped off a cliff, yeah. you know, cause you have like this big time agent and you're like, Oh shit. Like this is it. Like, you know, and I just worked on it and I revised it. And like, even though I got it to this better iteration, like it just didn't, well, you know, you didn't think it was as, as good, but still, I mean, it was kind of like a, it was a similar book, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it just kind of needed more trimming and maybe it would have gotten picked up in this state. Who knows? But like it kind of just went cold. I got a, I got looks. I got a lot of looks at like different places, but it never got picked up. And and you know meeting meeting you know the, as is our tradition. I'll bring up Sergio because I have to. But like meeting, <laughs> I've done that since you've been yeah, gone. It's we like have a to. Tick now. I feel I feel like like I'm gonna get struck by lightning if I don't do it at this point. <laughs> but yeah, meeting Sergio and Su- and his wife Susanna. I mean Susanna's honestly just like one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And. Like, what they did with his first book, I mean, because he's a talent that, like, if he never saw the light of day, my life would be significantly worse. Like, just significantly worse. And that's just, like, really hard to say because how many other people are like that out Mm -hmm. there? Because they self-published that book that he couldn't publish for three years because people thought it was too difficult. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then when when Susanna put it out, lo and behold, good shit sells, you know? And so, like, meeting meeting them and, like, kind of getting some encouragement from them. And then, like, you know, when I was in the kind of, like, the depths of, like, threatening to self-publish it, that's yeah. kind of when uh, our third partner, John, who's just a fucking whiz kid, you know, like, like he can do anything. Like, really, like, he came in and, and, and he was like, we should just start our own press. And the first thing I was like, yeah, we got we to gotta get Katie on board. <laughs> and I know John, like, John didn't know Katie that well at that point. And so he's like, what the fuck is this? Like, some kind of, like, like probably to himself. But then very quickly realized <laughs> that <laughs> it all worked out far for the better. Because I, I say jokingly, and I know that they keep telling me that this is not true, but I am definitely the least important part of this. Not, uh, it, you, it is I'm, I'm going to cut this out. No, you're I'm not, cutting it out. It's no. just not true. No, because we'll let them be the judge of that. I, I think I have good taste, and like I like the fact that I read our submissions and stuff, but other than that, I mean, like I am not fit to function in capitalism. <laughs> I'm just not. Like I can write, and that's like... You, you don't know... <laughs> How many times while you were gone, John and I were just like, 
Okay, we're just gonna put this off till Brian gets back because we can't do it without him. Like, yeah. we can't do this. Okay, we well, we're not gonna get like, into this. No, no, you brought it up. I'm bringing it up. Like you, I think I'm good at following orders. You are, <laughs> you are the heart in this project. Well, thank you, but I, 100%. I don't think there's any shame in that. I think I need to follow orders. I think that's like my thing now. Is like I need to listen to what other people have to say. <laughs> So that was that was my journey. And like that's the thing. Like Susanna and Sergio were there the whole way. Like I even begged Susanna to just be my agent before we did any of this. And she was like, No, because I'm not gonna take your money. I'm like, fine, then just fucking do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> they we are indebted to them for, for life. For sure. Which yes. is why we just keep saying Sergio's name on this podcast. So Sergio, Sergio. Yeah. Sergio. <laughs> we know Sergio. But yeah, and and also but and I I just want to give thanks to everyone else who blurbed the book too, because like some of my favorite writers like yeah. and people have blurbed the book and it's just very surreal. Like, you know, like I, I don't give a shit if like I, I'm I'm so happy that this is published by our own venture now. Cause like that like to me, like I kind of see it as like the rest of that's like uh it, it, it's a cool vanity project if penguin random house publishes it like that's cool but like having the people that i respect like the writers that i respect say that they liked it was like you know it's not it's not it's funny it's, that you call penguin a vanity project uh, yeah when most people would say that about like self-publishing or indie well yeah no i something. know that's a very ironic thing to say but yeah. well but i think i know i like idiomatically i think you know what i mean yeah like it's no, like I do. It's like, you know, the reason we're starting this is because if you do get published there, you might not get the publicity that you deserve. You mm -hmm. might get midlisted or something like that, like, which is something that we're trying to change. Like, I, it just all worked out for the better. Like, it really did. I'm, just, I'm so happy it worked out this way. So. Well, are you excited? I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm, and You've I'm actually excited. got a wild excited. party that yeah. we're about to throw. Uh-huh. And, and uh, yeah, it's going to be no bullshit. You're not going to, anyone who's going to be there, yeah, there's not going to be any, any, um, just, you know, there's going to be one reading because yeah. we are doing a partnership with PIN America mm -hmm. and the Poetry Project, which is important in the reading series yeah. of New York. We're actually there's a project this September that reading series around New York are doing called Breakout, a movement to reintegrate incarcerated writers into the literary community, mm -hmm. which is super exciting. And is only a start, I want to say. Like, I think like the whole I, ha I feel obligated, I feel compelled to say that, like, Having gone through what I've gone through, I've talked to a lot of people that have been shuttled through the prison system and mm -hmm. the integration system as a whole. Like, I mean, like, it's just fucked up. Like, it's so hard. And like, this is the least we can do. I mean, it's, it's like, honestly, it's, I don't know. Well, the yeah. project too is not about like, so many people tokenize quote unquote prison writers, which right. most writers who right. are incarcerated hate that term. Yeah. Because they expect yeah. people who are inca people. Yeah, incarcerated to write about certain things. And like if you write about something totally you know, besides your incarceration, then people tend not to give it the the, the time of day it deserves. Uh -huh. And so this movement is really about like how do we as reading series in the literary community look at incarcerated writers. How are we treating them in the community? How are we talking about them? And how are we showcasing their work in just a responsible and respectful way? And so each reading series is hosting the work of a currently incarcerated writer, which you will be reading, uh -huh. uh, the work of St. James Harris Wood. Uh -huh. He's out in California, uh -huh. um, but has struggled with addiction and drugs himself. Uh -huh. So it's all kind of serendipitous. And uh -huh. you'll be reading, not from your book at your own launch party, yeah. you'll be reading his work, which I think is pretty cool. Because if you want to read it, just fucking buy it, you know? Yeah. 
or or win a raffle there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would like to hear some of Emerald City. Oh dear. If you're game for it. Sure. And can um, I make a request? Oh, uh, you want me to read a specific part? Okay. And since we talked about it, I'm wondering if you might want to read that part with Julia discovering. Okay. So, well, I want to introduce this by reading Sergio's blurb for it. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Since we talk about him so much, I want to hear what he had to say about your novel. In Emerald City, Brian Birnbaum expertly creates a kinetic but pained world. The result is an addictive blend of compelling discovery and sultry recognition. Above all, it's the authenticity of the work that most controls. Birnbaum has a true gift for creating individuated characters and people like Julia jump off the page as not just magnetic emblems, but as perfect repositories for the empathetic magic of fiction. Then there's the prose. It's subtly sly and inventive throughout, but also perfectly pitched to particular story and structural demands. Expansive enough to encompass the universal, but also honed enough to beautify the granular. This is preternatural assurance. A moving and intelligent work that resonates beyond the final page. And that's from Sergio de la Pava, author of A Naked Singularity and Lost Empress. I could die now. And Personae. And Personae. Don't forget that. Big fucking deal. Yep. (laughs) Okay. So the only thing you need to know is that Julia is in middle school and is very suspicious about what her father is up to. She's, you know, she's getting to that age where she's wondering where he's going at certain points, so. Julia's first day in Ashbury Grammar's junior high wing had ended precisely a couple minutes earlier. Adolescence, skins bright with overproduction of hormones and collagen, thronged the pickup curb, which she avoided in favor of crossing the playground where K through six kids met their parents. Beyond the junior high wing, she heard the whistles of pickup proctors, the honks of minivans, the bustle of kids boarding buses. Her head down, she tracked the asphalt underfoot, staring at gravel pocked with pearlescent grits like stony salami. In her broody ruminations, it hit her, how she was here doing this, right now. Time and space was weird, but not as weird as existing. Was she the one thinking, or was her brain thinking, or both? Perhaps the jump to sixth grade was jarring. The hallways were clinical, medical, dire, though absent were the grammar wing's color-coded routes to classes, which had always made her think of the variegated lines directing them to the room in which Aunt Ginny's mother had passed. Junior high was newfangled. She was supposed to enter through the side door, where 7th through 8th graders loitered, some of them speaking on things she thought only high schoolers did. The teachers had all conspired to remind them that things would be different on the new wing. They were no longer entitled to certain amenities. The welfare system was banished. Their grades would reflect the intersection of intelligence and effort. Tiger economy of tween-age endocrine systems. Pedagogical fear-mongering. Teeming fear. Skepticism. If things are not as they seem, who can be blamed for what they see? But Julia was certain her father was stepping out. Her certainty was that of the prophets, the certainty that signals birds south. The certainty, according to the media she consumed, of the male biological imperative, XY. The certainty, according to Julia's more progressive instinct of human nature, A-G-C-T. 
Each Sunday, her father attended Mass alone. This past Sunday, he returned in a slick white coupe, which whizzed past the stop sign at the corner after dropping him off. How was it? her mother asked at dinner. Awaiting his response, Julia's eyes swung like an owl clock's. Pass yours, hun. Meatballs squished as she ladled them on plates. I'm twelve, Julia announced, taking the bowl and ladling her own. There was a ceremony for Father. There was a ceremony for Father Dominic. There was a ceremony for Father Dominic. He said. Everyone lit a candle. So sad. So sad. Julia thought. There was a woman and a speedy sports car dropping her father off well after mass had ended. If he could rationalize Catholicism, his mind could perform the somersault into another woman's bed. The next Sunday, Julia told her mother she was going to, um, shit. She hadn't planned the finer points. She'd procrastinated inside to kill a mockingbird, her first book report not due until mid-October. Standing in the kitchen, her mother was making tea, her father grading essays. Julia prepared words that would convince them to condone an unaccompanied trip to the bay, to the... Julia prepared words that would convince them to condone an unaccompanied trip to the Bay Bridge. She stared at them, much in the way she did when poking fun at their throttled focus. No matter her angle, the proposal sounded insane to her mind's ear. She was twelve. Organizing solo excursions went far beyond her jurisdiction. Asking for a ride to Chelsea's or Shayla's, who were barely even school friends, let alone weekend besties, would risk her mother seeing her to the front door. Unless... Hey, Dad? J-Dog, he semaphored. What is proverbially up? Please don't. Got it. No means no, he X'd indexes. Oh my... Dad, gross much? What's up, he said. Can you drop me off at the Bay Bridge? His pen paused over a teacherly flourish. Julia continued. Coach Jack wants us to do a long run today, but I'm not going to do all these hills. How about I drive you three hours down the five and drop you off at a checkpoint? I'm sure you'll make friends with the rest of the sex slaves there. Jonathan, rang her mother's appall. Come on, Dad. If I have to do my loop four times, I'll go crazy. Let her go, honey. It's only a few miles away, said her mother. It's a nice area. What is this, the voice of reason in my head, he said. Her mother added, the voice of reason says it's like two minutes from the church. I am very concerned for our daughter's safety, he said. He meant something else, something she couldn't understand. Of course, honey, her mother said, returning to her work. As did her father. Julia waited. You have two minutes, he said. Your father's late and he's speaking today. Julia leaned into the open window and kissed his cheek. He revved off, leaving her near a bike rental shop. Farther, a trail led to the Bay Bridge, whose upper trusses were shrouded in fog. She was three miles from home, but only a bit more than a third from the church. She ran the gauntlet of eclectic tourists and less varied locals. The latter grew per capita as she wound away from the water. Dreadlocks, frosted spikes, loud band shirts, lots of zoo york, metal, epidermal impalement, pungency, skates like their dense soffing. This was what normal looked like, Julia told herself, except for where normal looked. Their heads like camera dollies, tracking her with clinical precision as they passed. Off Lombard, she cozied into a stoop's cove. Along the curb nearby, technicians fed wire into a truck with an impressive cross of haste and care. Past the truck, across the street, stood an inky blots and a Spencer's. Again, she referenced the directions, pulled from MapQuest. She looked up. 
Inky Blots 431, Spencer's 435, bookending 433, which was definitely not a church. An evanescent thought moved through her, as only the deepest and most uncomfortable truths do, that, much as her mother had described men's desire, vindication emptied itself shortly after it was won. Julia was cold in her spandex, shivering within the stoop's cove. She hugged her stomach. Then she saw his burnished profile, eclipsing that woman's, walking beside him. The frosted glass door closed after them, and Julia was spurned forth into the street, gull shadows flitting overhead. She made of her hand a hat's bill, squinted through the opaque entrance, seeing another door down a short hallway. She waited outside another few minutes, peeking every so often to ensure the coast's clearness. Motel? Brothel? She crept inside, along the drab hall, held her ear to a board wood door. On the door's brass placard was a circumscribed triangle, Illuminati-like. Having a cult leader for a father was perhaps worse than a cheater. Just a few lines in, she heard, And as committee leader, nothing pleases me more than to present to you Jonathan Rossiti, who's here to tell his story. Modest applause dwindled to rustles and restives. An amplified screech, an adjusted microphone, and her father's voice. Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Hi, Jonathan. I'd like to thank Miranda and Julio for advocating this. They're the two biggest reasons I keep coming back. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Through the door's fake wood and the death of certainty, Julia listened to a story. When I was born, her dad began, if you didn't lock your door, you deserved to get your shit lifted. The crowd laughed nervously, nearly cloyingly. Luckily, he continued, before I was even playing t-ball, my pop moved us from our apartment near the Hudson into a gable front outside Yonkers. One Sunday, my pop was out of town. My mom was talking with girlfriends on the phone, which meant I could sneak some TV time when the doorbell rang twice, I remember. My mother yelled at me to get it, and that set off baby Danny more than the doorbell had. I opened the door to a short man in a windowpane suit, charcoal with white crossings, and tortoiseshell glasses. A lot like Meyer Lansky. He asked if my pop was home. When I told him he wasn't, Meyer said something about that being convenient, and asked to speak to my mother. You can speak to me, I said to him. I was trying to keep my mother on the phone so I could keep watching cartoons. He told me to let him know he came by and turned away, and I caught a glimpse of something I'd never seen before outside TV or a movie. A semi-glock. On impulse, I said maybe one of the dumbest things I've ever said. I said, what's that? Meyer, he's amused now. He peers down at me and says, you know what a vig is, hmm? I didn't even know what a live pair of tits looked like, but I nodded. He was less than convinced, and rightly so. He crouched down that Glock's handle poking out his waistband. Your father, he owes me a little money, he says. For what, I ask. And he says, for taking the Chargers with eight points. At that point, I squared to him. He's a Giants fan. Meyer stood up and said, it doesn't seem like you know what he really is, guy. Now I was scared and pissed off, which always turned me into a smartass or made me more of one. I started explaining to him that the original guy, Guy Fox, was part of a conspiracy to blow up Parliament with gunpowder. I told him how in the end, Guy and his boys all got caught. That they were drawn and quartered. Now they say you can be too smart for this program. I think that applies to life in general. You think you know things. After I told my little parable about Guy Fox, I realized he'd use his piece if he had to. Not on me, and that was worse because of me. I told Meyer to give me a minute. I'd go get him his money. 
I hightailed upstairs, soft on my feet to keep my mother focused on her friend's gossip and whatnot. But once I got to my room, I heard her coney accent, which could cut through a cinder block. Can I help you? She calls. And I hear him say something about, That's okay, ma'am. Your son's been kind enough to donate a dollar to the synagogue. And she's all, That's sweet and whatnot, sucking on a Turkish royal. I can still smell those. Anyway, Meyer knew what he was doing. Made a living doing it. Shaking people down. I was aware of it, but what was a kid to do? I had no choice. I packed every cent since my first allowance in that backpack. Didn't even know how much my pop owed. Just brought it down, assuming it was a sum I couldn't count to. And when Meyer opened the knapsack, he just smirked at me like it's this easy for him. He tipped the brim of the hat he wasn't wearing and whistled his way off the porch. I cowered in my room for hours before I heard my pop come up the stairs, then his voice just beyond my door. Office. Now. Those were very bad words. Then again, the things I'd gleaned about his dealings earlier that day, they granted me some sort of amnesty. Plus, my mother was upstairs putting my sister down, and he couldn't kill me with witnesses in the house. In his office, he was pointing at his chair. He would have whooped me if he'd found even that imprint of my ass in that chair. Now I realize that this had less to do with that seat than what I could find out about him while sitting in it, and this pissed me off. The way he talked about his job, he'd always called it human resources. Never a company, agency, institution. Still, I sat in that damn chair. You gave away too large, John. Too grand, he said. Is that what a man does? Hands over his livelihood? I tell him he had a gun, and he's worried about my allowance money. He said to me, Look, Junior, if you're a sailor, you're trying to get home, but the wind don't change, what do you do? Do you throw yourself overboard? No, you wait for the fucking wind to change back. As a kid, I felt like the less others knew about you, the more power you had. Maybe my pop felt the same way. I couldn't understand what me being put in danger had anything to do with sailing, so I got up and I slammed the office door in his face. In our family, to disrespect your father like that, but I didn't care. I went to my friend Christian's and played Atari. His mom made us grilled cheeses. It was nice. One of my last memories of normality. Later that night, I snuck back into the house and my pop was waiting for me by the fire. For the second time that day, he requested that I sit on the couch this time. He rolled up his sleeves and paced. Then he surprised me. He said it wasn't the world that made me who I was. I did. At that moment, in my kid's brain, I was wondering what my mother knew about what he did, and I just got angry again. I didn't think about what he was telling me. I just asked him straight up, What do you do? I saw him caught between explanations. It's a way of living, of knowing how to survive, he said. And just then, my ma appeared at the bottom of the stairs in her nightgown, ready for bed. Danielle's out, was all she said, and went back upstairs. She knew. A few years later, my pop and I were watching The Godfather, which to my pop was a documentary. Sounds cliche, but that's the thing. I'd try to ruin it for him. I remember watching Sonny get word about his sister getting beat up by her husband again. You know how Sonny races over in a rage, but the toll booth staked out by Barzini's henchmen? I'd been drinking quite a bit, toleration juice, but I remember saying something like, had there been an easy pass, Sonny would still be with us. My pop just told me to get my feet off the table and put his beer there. I thought he was just displacing my smart-assness, but after seeing his beer, he paused the movie right as Sonny was getting laced up. Maybe it was the sight of a son's death. I'd graduated that morning. My mother had come with Danny, who was a stranger to me even then. My pop was under house arrest, so that anklet kept him from the ceremony. Still, maybe he was sorry to have missed it on some level. Maybe it was its own rite of passage. 
I'm still not sure why he chose this moment, but either way, he asked me if I remembered that day, giving away all my money, and what he'd said about the sailor. His eyes were on the movie. I thought for a moment more to seem like I was trying to remember than actually remembering. He said it was the principle of it, that I'd been taken, and I begrudged him that. He was drunk, or he was getting there, the happy rising action. He was that glean to mean type. Anyway, there would be no better time to ask. I asked him what happened to the collector, to Meyer Lansky, as I knew him, and he just shrugged and flicked his head toward the TV, which was still paused on Sonny's last breaths. I was gut-checked, like a boxer taking a haymaker. I could no longer pretend what he was, what I was. He pressed play, releasing Sonny from his suffering. Then he said to me, what you don't see in the movies is how they shit themselves. He and my ma had split, so we were watching a movie in this bachelor pad in the city, a closet that cost a million bucks. For my ma's sake, it was just pizza, two liter coke, bottle of Jack. But he'd already shown me around, introduced me to his guys. He wasn't a conscript anymore, but full connected. Crew to his name, guys collecting for him now, his own little Myers. Guys paying him protection, Goombas coming in and out. Stories about stupid conversations with John Gotti like it was Bill fucking Clinton. The show and tell was a proposition. He'd remind me I was good with numbers. Send me off with uncomfortably thick wads of cash, his way of communicating what I could have. When the pressure really started building, I started using. Half to cope, but half to spite him. Kind of like treating a girl like shit to get her to dump you. Ran away upstate, where the meth was cheap and plenty. He'd still send guys to check on me where I was squatting in Rochester, doing all the standard shit to support my habit. But he'd wait till I begged. His guys had come in kicking the other squatters, berating me for a bit, then leave me with a 20, just enough to cop something to come off the crank. Like he wanted me back, but had to humiliate me first. One day, one of his guys tried to prove a point and went too far. You would have thought this guy was on speed, a fucking zealot. He was furious, screaming about how we could have been brothers, how I was throwing everything away. All the while, I'm on the nod, nothing, just nothing, glaze over my eyes, you know. Not that it would have worked, but he couldn't beat up his boss's son. He could come up there and berate me, tell me I was a piece of shit, but he couldn't touch me. So he found the nearest junkie and just choked him out, right there in front of me, and I did nothing. Except get clean, the very next day. First meeting I went to, I heard about Mikey, found dead after two years sober. We'd split a bag and I hadn't even gotten his name. I wasn't planning on telling that story. Sorry, everyone. Anyway, this is not when I stopped being an addict. There's never a singular event that drives one to drink and smoke glass and shoot up for three years, and there isn't one that ends it. But there are signs, or in my case, explicit acts. Addiction is in my blood, it's in my pops, and it's in mines. It's... I'm sorry. Thank you very much. The audience's response, Thank you, Jonathan, knocked Julia back to presence, staggering from the door. The folded map slipped from her fingers. The rattled knob. The door opening. She was stuck in mental mud. She watched him lean down to drink, slurping the fountain's limpid stream, lips gleaming as he straightened and saw her. During his pause, his eyes shifted from singular shock to plenary hurt, and he went to her, his arms two bulky snakes eerily restrictive. Her understanding caught in this vice. She couldn't help but think, I don't know who you are. Oof. That one hits home right now. That was very strange to read. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good, though. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, me too.
That was really cool. There's a cool moment happening here. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's really, you know what's really weird? What? I was thinking about how I wanted to do the Italian accents, but just couldn't pull it off, so I just <laughs> fucked it. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, you guys can imagine it when you read it. <laughs> you have to practice those for the audiobook. I know. I do. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're coming to a close, but... Your book's coming out Sunday. Yeah, that's crazy. Getting published. You just read it out of its book form, and yep. it will be available to the whole wide world on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Very strange. Very cool. I'm very excited. I'm very excited for you and for us mm-hmm. and for everything. And I'm really proud of you for sharing today and being vulnerable. I'm sure there's somebody out there who really appreciates it too. Yeah, I hope so. But I also want to add on, on a brighter note, or I, not a brighter note, but a different note, I guess. My book is coming out, but I'm really excited for the other books we have coming out too, like David's, mm-hmm. Anthropica, mm-hmm. Annie's, yours. One day. There's a there's a children's book we're working on. Yep. And we're still, you know, going through the slush pile, looking for the next one, you know. Looking, yeah. So if you got a manuscript, send yeah. it to us. Yep. We'd love to read yeah. it. Yeah. Super excited about all that. David's book is just. Uh, fucking masterpiece yeah it's gonna be awesome he's gonna be on the podcast soon Mm -hmm. okay that's it for today's episode if you like what you heard please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening you can get in touch with us on twitter facebook and instagram at animal riot press or through our website animalriotpress.com this has been the 33rd episode of the animal riot podcast with me your host katie rainey and your regular host resuming his duties brian birnbaum you can pre-order Brian's Emerald City right now at AnimalRiotPress.com or get it Sunday through Amazon and ship to you. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was edited by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by... Since you're back, do you want to say it? Oh, Katie Rainey. Without whom, we would merely be two monkeys banging on a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs>